So to this evening's talk, um, I was delighted when Zoe uh, chatted to me, which seems an age ago now, about coming along to give a talk based on her book and her journey. But she said to me, you know, I'm not very good at public speaking. I said, well, don't worry about that, you know, you'll be in good hands. She then proceeded to talk at me for two hours. <laughs> Aided by a glass of wine, I think it probably went on even longer. But anyway, uh, I'm delighted that she's here. I know quite a few of you have met her already. Um, she's here to talk about the trip. Um, I need your participation as well, because I'm sure there are questions that you'd like to ask that necessarily didn't come out in print. I'll leave it there and won't go any further. But first of all, I'd like to welcome Graham Robson. Some of you may know Graham as a journalist, historian, and broadcaster. And he's very kindly uh, come along tonight to keep Zoe under control. Okay, so read into that what you want. Graham, come and join us. Well. Thank you very much for that. So, ladies and gentlemen, to the star of the show, will you please welcome Zoe Kelly. Uh, all we need to do is to, is to ask James at the back, are we, are we good for sound? We are good for sound, right. Okay, now this evening is either going to be a, a triumph or a disaster. Uh, that depends on me. If it's, if it's anything to do with me, it'll be a disaster because I'm very bad at this sort of thing. But first of all, uh, and I'm not quite sure I can see into the audience with the lights down at the moment, I want to get a feel of the meeting for Zoe. Can I, can I stand up and... Can I have lights up just for a minute, please? There is a reason for this. If we can have the house lights up just for, just for a minute. Oh, wow, wonderful. Right, this is to give Zoe a feeling of, of the sort of audience she's got. How many people here have, have ever ridden a motorbike? Hands up. Good. Good start, right. Good. How many people now still ride motorbikes from time to time? You see, we're, we're, we're among friends already. Now, these are the more difficult questions, and I will be uh, setting tests at the end of the evening. Uh, how many people here have not been to the States? They've all been to, oh, one or two people, don't admit to too much. So, how many people here have not, be, not been to the States? The answer is not many. So, basically, I think they, they know the sort of country you're going to be talking about. Fine. And... Uh, the rest of it now is up to Zoe. So, having sorted out that you're all motorcyclists, and uh, you all know quite a lot more about the States than I feared, the light house lights can go down again, and let's get on. Now, I can also tell you that, in theory, I'm a, uh, I won't say an experience, but I, I've done a lot of this sort of thing. I've never, to my certain knowledge, sat down talking to a star, who's ridden all the way across the United States anyway, and I've certainly never sat down and talked to someone who, in spite of what she told me earlier, was so confident about the outcome of this that she, that she did it without a single hitch, as far as I can see. What I want to do is to say, right, you've heard enough of Robson for the next two minutes, let me hand over to Zoe and say, Zoe, tell us what the evening is going to be about. 
Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we had said from the beginning that we wanted it to be quite a spontaneous evening. Um, I would like to, I think the, the key thing I'd like to sort of convey this evening is that I am a normal person, believe it or not, um, but I did manage to do what I thought was the impossible, and it is to just sort of be able to tell other people that if you have a dream in life, and if you are gung-ho enough and focused enough, whether it is just learning how to pedal cycle or learning how to swim. I had a dream, which was obviously quite a different sort of dream, but it's to tell people that if you are motivated enough and you believe in yourself, then you can make it happen. And the whole escapade uh, and what we're going to be talking about this evening um, was certainly not something that was done rashly, and it was certainly not something that was done on the spur of the moment. Um, because I wanted something very, very special to happen and potentially at that stage, although I didn't think it would happen or I'd even thought about it, it actually changed very, very dramatically my life. Um, and I think due to that, um, we are able to, I think, start this evening to say to you that um, we're going to hopefully inspire some of you to possibly think about how you can make your dreams or your thoughts of making things happen too. How seasoned a biker were you before this, quote, escapade took shape? I think that's a really good question. I think just to sort of put the um, foundations in this evening, um, when I said the word normal, nobody is normal, but I had literally, I, I lived in Paris for 10 years, um, back in the 80s, uh, working in the film industry, and I had a very dear friend who was a, um, a mechanic on the Peugeot factory floor and towards the mid-80s, late-80s, they started manufacturing the new Peugeot scooters. And he said to me, uh, Mademoiselle, I think it was, would be good for you to have a scooter and to, uh, rather than, you know, use the Metro, why don't you get a, a little scooter? So I actually ended up uh, with three bikes. Uh, two got stolen, one outside the boulangerie and one outside um, the office. So I ended up having three bikes. Um, and I didn't actually ride another bike until just about seven or eight years ago. When I moved back from, I then was um, headhunted, I moved from Paris to America. I lived in Boston for two years and in New York. Again, events and exhibitions, which uh, is what I've always been involved in. And when I finally moved back to the UK, um, it was during the great recession of 2007, um, I was made redundant from a very, very well-paid job, um, and I basically thought I had to sell my convertible car, and I thought, why don't I get back into bikes? So without a car, I then ended up buying another little scooter, and from then onwards, I've been two wheels forever. Um, now, when I, when I met you for the first time this evening, and this is true, I, I met Zoe on the phone last week, but I met her this evening for the first time at six o'clock. I looked at this girl and thought, wow, uh, why is she not six foot three with a moustache? Because that's what girl bikers are. <laughs> really? So, 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 so you see, my first problem was looking at this, this lovely girl here and thinking, it's either a con or there's something I don't understand about you. I mean, how could you, looking as good as you do, and I'm sure every man in the audience will say the same, looking as good as you do, how on earth could you get involved in riding full-size bikes, doing a full-size adventure? 
I think one of the questions people ask me is, is where do I get the inspiration from or, or what made it happen? And um, I, I have a very, very um, inc incredible father, and unfortunately he's no longer with us, but um, he was very much uh, an adventurer himself. And he was, during the Second World War, he was a Spitfire and Hurricane mechanic. Uh, he spent all the Second World War in Egypt. And um, I found these little pictures recently of him. He must have been no more than 17 years old. It must have been at an old RAF centre with all these sort of wooden sheds. And he sat looking very naively uh, on this old BSA bike. Um, so he obviously must have been to bikes at some point. And then it goes down the generations because his father was also, I found out um, only recently, um, that he was also a, an explorer and he had been a civil engineer and had at the turn of the century been to the Amazon rainforest. He went into Manaus and was one of the first people to do the tramways in, in Manaus. So um, possibly that's the, you know, the inspiration or some of the, that's my father. We got there, yeah. <laughs> So that's my father, and uh, I guess it's a BSA, isn't it? So I don't know what kind of bike that is, but um, that must Someone be... in the audience will tell us. What sort of a bike is it, please? Say again? A BSA Gold Star. That's quite a high-performance bike of its period. So what CC would that be? What CC? So... But that I know is probably one year before the war, so mm -hmm. we're talking about probably when he was 17 or so. But this is where, if you like, the, the, the motorcycling gene came into your head. Yeah, and I, so I came back to the UK and just very, very quickly before we go into the US side of the trip as to how I conceptualised this trip. Um, the recession, um, bought the scooter, and then all of a sudden I went into this bike school and in the window was this second-hand motorbike and it was, I have to say, love at first sight. It was this Bonneville T100 2003, sexy racing green with a sort of a gold strip on its tank. And I thought, if I'm gonna take a bike test, it's gotta be because my ambition is to own her, you know. So um, I, I took, I was very lucky because it was before the biking tests got all that so complicated like they are now. Um, and I took uh, the test, and I'm going to be very honest with you people this evening, because I hope you're going to be honest with me, uh, and I'm not very, very sort of um, proud to say, but I could not do a UE on the 500cc bikes they gave me for the test. So the teacher said to me, he said, you know what, Zoe, it doesn't really matter. Take it on a 125, you'll be able to hold the bike and go around and do the U-turns, but you can still buy the Bonneville. You know, because you get it what they call a restricted license, which means you can actually ride the bike, or at the time it was riding the bike for two years, and then, you know, release it and then have the bike. So I did actually pass the test on a 125, um, but I immediately the next day picked up the Bonneville. <laughs> so so when, when, did the, when did the urge come upon you to start doing something really silly? <laughs> really I mean, silly. This counts as really silly if you see what I mean. Some, a, 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 a trek. I, I, 
you know, following these redundancies, coming back to the UK, I, I felt that I was getting into this boring nine to five routine. And um, I, I wanted, I've always wanted to have some ambition, something to be able to go out and do. Um, and I've sort of ridden across the Andes on endurance horse riding with Pasifina horses. I've rode the entire length of the Thames on skiff boats. Um, so I've done a few things. And the sort of the idea to do this was really to have something, a goal to look forward to, to be able to do something which I thought was going to be fairly impossible. Um, so during the sort of the boring nine to five days, I could sort of look on the web a bit and sort of think, ooh, what could I possibly do? Um, and it was actually during a, a morning at the Ace Cafe with a girlfriend, uh, we'd sort of biked up there, and we sort of like you do on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, think, oh, you know, what would we, you know, what dreams, you know, what would we like to do? And because I'd lived in America, I'd lived in Boston, as I said, in New York and Connecticut, um, the Americans, I'm sure you all know, you know, American holidays are so, so small. I mean, you get something like two weeks holiday if you're lucky. Um, and I was inspired and was always wanting to travel across America or more importantly, visit the lesser known parts of it. But I was never able to when I lived over there. So the inspiration was to have a very difficult project that I could get my teeth into over a period of time and to find the most incredible places um, and to do it under my own terms. And I think that with anybody who has a dream, you need to be able to do things under your own terms. And I found these old National Geographic maps, these 1960s, 1970s National Geographic maps in my father's old suitcase in the attic. And it was that, it was those maps that I pinned on my kitchen wall that gave me the inspiration to start living the dream. Okay, so we're, we're now, and I come back to having read this at, at great length, more than once, I can tell you, in the, in the last two or three weeks. We now come to the fact that the, the figures, the numbers that matter, I think I'm right, Zoe, are 6,000 plus miles, am I right, that you finished up? 6,000 plus miles in 30 odd days. Uh, the dear girl had one or two days off, but apart from that, it was sitting on a, on a a big triumph on for, for all that time. Um, how long did it take to plan? And since I'm a rude Yorkshireman, where did the money come from? <laughs> Two very interesting questions. I think I sort of started talking about how long it took. It actually took me, and I know this seems impossible to believe, it actually took me five years to plan. Because the, the first thing I wanted to do was, the idea was to go across America on a British bike, and it was to go on a triumph Bonneville. And I did this trip, I finally did the trip in 2012, and believe it or not, Triumph had only just started getting into the US market. So I was thinking, should I buy a bike? Should I ship my own bike over there? And again, very, very naive. You know, I wasn't asking other bikers what they should do or what, you know, what I should do. I was just doing a little bit of research. Um, and it transpired that to ship my own bike over, first of all, it would be very, very costly, um, but secondly, as it was my only form of transport back here in the UK, if I had an accident, I'd be wearing a bike. So the idea was to try and source a bike. Um, and I, I can tell you how I had finally sourced it. The five years uh, was, first of all, to get this bike. And it was after about three years, um, there was no dealerships, there were no second-hand bikes, and again, naively, how would I have bought a second-hand bike and be ready to do a cross-America trip? Um, and I started using you know, this wonderful media of the internet and social media, 
and I'd only just started doing a bit of twittering back then, and I found through some connection, some organisation based in Los Angeles, and I told them the story as to what I wanted to do, that I wanted to travel across America solo, um, finding the lesser roads, um, trying to find quirky little places to see if on these old National Geographic maps these quirky little places still existed. And incredibly, they, um, they liked the idea and agreed to um, ship a Triumph T100 up to Boston, which is where I wanted to start the trip. And um, that's how the dream started. And then after that, I just had to start saving money. So, you know, there was a whole panoply of things as to how I earned money. I rented out my spare room. Uh, I started eating just baked beans on toast, literally. I didn't go to I didn't go to cinemas anymore. Because um, I, I, I think when you're focused, when you know something's happened, I'd, I'd all of a sudden found that there was a bike there. I knew now that I had three things to do. I had to save the money, and more importantly, and just as scary, I had to ask my nine to five job people for the time off, because I'd thought it's gonna take probably about six to eight weeks, you know. Um, and that scared me. That's kind of ironically was thinking, what am I gonna do if they say no? So that was a big decision. Am I going to still do this trip? And I'm a bit of a risk taker, so I just thought, well, if they say no, I've found the bike, I've got the savings, maybe I should just do it. The joy of this conversation is that Zoe appears to have instant recall of everything that happened. It's all in this book. Who did that? Did I do that? No, you did that. Um, <laughs> it's all in this book, all, all the detail of this. And, you know, I kept on reading it and I thought, either, either she's, um, what's the word? Paranoid is the wrong word, but either she was totally focused on this only for a while, or she's a, she's a genius. And it's the sort of thing I wish I'd have thought of when I was your age. <clears throat> so you, you spent all the time planning. The point is that the, the bike was not bought, it was rented. It was. The bike was rented, and I think that's important, isn't it, to the story? There's a lot of people that ask me, you know, did you take your own bike over there? Is it possible to obviously ship? And of course it's possible to ship bikes over. Um, and again, I think... Possibly I was naive in not having done enough research, but I didn't actually want to take my own bike over there anyway because of the fact that I was such... I'd probably done no more than 100 miles on a bike at any one time, so I was really naive on biking. Um, so the idea was to have a bike which was already based in the US. Okay, now the practical side of things is that if you were going to uh, plan to ride, and I said drive, to ride across the States on a motorbike by yourself, you were, almost, you were almost carrying your home on your back, apart from a pocket full of credit cards to pay a few bills. How on earth did you make the decisions as to what you needed to take and what you didn't need to take? Because from what you said in this book, it was fairly well loaded by the time you set off, heavily loaded. Yeah, I, I, I sort of had a, about a 70 kilo bag, I had two side panniers and a tank bag. Um, and I had, over a period of time, written everything down that I thought I needed to take. And in fact, funnily enough, I, I, this was very, very interesting. You know, I, I, having lived in Paris, you know, you know, you have to take the lipstick, you have to take the perfume. You know, I probably took about four dresses. Um, and it, I've written it actually funnily in a very quirky kind of way. I put it all in the back of the book to sort of also more to the 
point to remind me as to exactly what I did take. And again, in, in my kitchen, I had not only these old National Geographic maps, but I had this massive great big piece of paper on all these things over a period of year I thought I wanted to take. So um, I don't think I was thinking of spanners at that point. I don't think I was thinking of, you know, but I did actually take a, a whole tank of oil, which I in retrospect didn't, wouldn't have needed. Um, but I, you know, I did think, well, you know, maybe I should sort of take um, two or three pairs of jeans. And it was all kind of that sort of thing. I actually, funny enough, didn't take any waterproofs. And, and, and from what you tell me, wish you had. And wished I had. And again, I think what is important is that at this stage, I wasn't, I was specifically wanting to do it in, a, in, a, in an old-fashioned sort of way. So I wasn't going to use sat-nav. I was only going to be using these old National Geographic maps and maybe one or two of the AAA American maps that I bought over there. Um, so it was very much a question of not really understanding the topography of the USA, not really um, going into any in-depth uh, research on what the weather patterns could potentially be. Um, I don't think I'd even heard the terminology of a storm front which actually happened the first day. Um, so I, I don't think I was actually that well equipped. And yet, looking, I've been looking at the back, not just browsing on the stand, I've been looking at the back again here. Uh, in the appendix at the back of this book, there's a list of what was in the bike. A, a half page of closely typed script here about what was on the bike. Then what was with the bike to keep it going, another half page. Then there was supplies and equipment, which includes all her clothing, another full page. And then the, the, the schedule goes on for two pages, the accommodation list goes on for three or four pages. You must have been good at making lists. I kind of wanted to be organised. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of travellers, and I, I read this very recently, um, which I actually took on board but didn't realise at the time, is that adventurers and explorers do actually have to prepare you know, you don't just go off and do it. And possibly I had over plan, but you know, there were specific things I wanted to see. There were specific places I wanted to stay at. Um, and in order to do that, I had to start prepping the route. So for example, if I had to do 450 miles one day to get to a certain place, that was my sort of schedule for what I needed to do. You made it very clear in this book that when it started, you hadn't thought very much about temperatures at all, about riding temperatures and everything. And in fact, the first few days were pretty awful weather. But then for a lot of this event, it turned out to be extremely hot. Um, you developed a theory, did you not, that the way to get this job done was to start very early in the mornings. 2012 goes down on the records, believe it or not, as being the hottest ever summer in American history. I mean, it might have got, obviously, with, you know, global warming, it might have got warmer since then. But it was literally the, the hottest summer on record. And so, therefore, the planning, um, not that I knew again, because I wasn't really looking at TV or very much knowing what was going to happen, but obviously, the further I got into the continent, the hotter it was getting. I wasn't actually... I was waking up very early. Most mornings I would be leaving depending on the, the mileage. Most mornings I would be leaving at about half past five, six o'clock. That wasn't so much the question, it was a question of the mileage I had to do and the weather, but it was also to be able to 
do the majority of the mileage and to try and get to these places by sort of early afternoon. And to enjoy the places when you got there. And exactly, and to be able to enjoy, because I mean, you hear so many extreme, I know now that I've spoken to a lot of them, you know, there are bikers that will go and they will literally keep riding and riding and riding. But for me, the whole point of this escapade and this journey was to get under the skin of Americana, to be able to have the time to be able to enjoy these places. So the idea to be able to arrive, you know, early in the afternoon, to be able to, you know, get get yourself reattired, to be able to, you know, visit these places was really important to me. But I didn't realise, ironically, that it was the best time of the day to be travelling because the weather was so hot. Did you not at any point feel vulnerable as a single girl on a bike that was too heavy for you, if you were honest, and, and uh, in a country that was really still quite strange to you. Did, did you not feel vulnerable at all? I think there are two issues to this. I think there are, there are, there are, um, there are psychologically, there are, there are two types, or I think in the psych, if you're a doctor, I there are four types of people, but there's two key types of people who relate to being on their own. You know, there are affiliated people who feel very uncomfortable ever being on their own. You know, they like other people's company. They always like to be with other people. There are other people who we call achievement, but it's just a, 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 a psychology term, um, where they're very comfortable in their own company. And I'm one of those people. So, first of all, the fact that I was traveling across the USA on my own, that for me was fine, it was normal, because I'm comfortable in my own company. Um, the fact as to whether I would have danger, um, it crossed my mind, and I think we spoke about this earlier, I think you know, the more you rationalise and the more you analyse problems or what could happen, I think the more you decide to think, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. And some of these locations I went to were so extremely remote, I mean, there would be two or three days where I wouldn't see another human being, literally. And I, you know, the thought of, you know, maybe having a puncture or maybe running out of fuel, you know, all of that didn't even cross my mind in the outset. Um, and I think somehow that was good because that actually helped me decipher what or the journey I wanted to do. I mean, some of the, or part of the trip was down through the, um, the, the Nevada desert um, through extreme terrain. And in retrospect, had I known what I now know, I might have thought, you know, a bit harder about not possibly doing it, but I did it anyway. Now, the, the very first few days of this trip, it wasn't a trip, it was a trek. The very first two or three days of this trek were the most difficult for you in terms of weather because the, the, there, was, there was awful rain and everything, wasn't there? Yeah, and I don't know if there's a picture of well, it. Let's next. see what comes up next. I don't think we do, because I had a picture. Okay. okay, do you want me to just go back? Let's go back on that, that was me being a bit too... Right, this is very, very, very generic. It's, it's, right. it's not detailed at all, but it just shows you where I started. I started up on the uh, top right-hand corner of Boston, um, and then I did actually zigzag up and down. It's just a pretty straight road, but it, that just shows you from where I went. But the first part of the trip, or the first day, was probably one of the longest trips, it was almost 400 miles, and I actually, uh, it was 330 miles, it was from Waltham, Massachusetts, which is a beautiful little town outside Boston, and I went all the way down to Wilmington, Delaware, which incredibly is through New York, um, into New Jersey, 
and that in itself was a long trek. But the fact that, again, I hadn't looked at the weather forecast, there was a storm front coming in from the, I think it was in, coming in from Kentucky or Tennessee, and as soon as I got over Manhattan and was going through New Jersey, the clouds literally just came in. There was this rumbling in the sky, and I had no waterproofs, I just had jeans and a t-shirt. I think any waterproof I had had was a sort of thin little five pound thing from, you know, just a DIY store over here. Um, and the clouds just literally covered, and it was horrendous, it was torrential. And I think this was the first time that I've ever called what I would call the road monsters, and I use this term a lot in, in the story. The monsters for me, and what scared me the most, were these incredible, massive trucks. Then it came, of course, into the game, I don't 18 wheels. I, I don't think I'd done, and I'm not exaggerating, I probably haven't done much more than about 60 miles an hour on, on a bike before. You know, quite a conservative kind of rider. And this horrendous rain was just gushing up from the backs of these trucks. And it was really dangerous. But the only thing I could do, I had to force myself to overtake them just to get out away from this flooding, which is all I can call it. The temperatures dropped from probably, it was probably in the late 70s when I left Boston, and the temperatures dramatically dropped. And what with the storm, what with the trucks, what with the incredibly cold weather, my hands were literally freezing. Um, so I was having to stop nearly every sort of 20, 30 miles down through New Jersey just to go into the ladies and get my hands warm. I was going to say, on a, you can't do what you can in a car, it's just to get your hands warm underneath the heat events. Of course, things like that don't exist on bikes, do they? Well, they do, actually, they do, but I didn't know about that. You can have water, everybody knows this. I saw up near Salt Lake City, up in the north, which was another horrendous uh, experience, where um, there was a guy on a uh, big BMW, and uh, we got to the top of one of these... Um, Washita, I think they were, but it was, we literally got to the top, and he said, uh, he said, don't you have heating? And he literally had heating from the bottom of the bike to the top, and he was fine. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're, we've got a, a good idea now of where you went, and that, by the way, the fact that the, the lines are straight doesn't mean the roads were straight. You made a, a big point of not using interstate highways very much, didn't you? Mm. Reason? Um, boring. Straight, um, A to B, uh, a lot of traffic. I wanted to get on the roads lesser travelled, um, so I was ready to divert and to, you know, go to. And again, a lot of the places that I discovered, a lot of places I wanted to stay, weren't on these normal on the interstates anyway. And I couldn't have thought of anything worse. It would have been like travelling on the M6 right. for the six weeks. <laughs> okay, so. Those two or three first days must have been horrific in that the, the conditions were not what you expected. The uh, riding conditions meant you had to go quicker than you were used to. You don't look like the sort of girl who are going to give in in a hurry, but, you, but were you very discouraged straight away? And how did you come through it? Um, I don't know if I was discouraged. I knew that there would... I, I, was, I was just surprised, I think, more than anything. I was just surprised that the weather could have changed so dramatically. Um, so when I arrived on that first day in Wilmington, um, it was actually the only time I'd invested in staying in a comfortable, standardised hotel, because I thought it was going to be the first day out on the road. 
I want to make sure that the bike is undercover. And ironically, it was a good thing the bike was put undercover that night because of the storm front. If the bike had been left out on a road or on a campsite or something, it would have literally been, it would have blown the way. <laughs> Talking of which, being a cynic as I am, were you ever worried about the bike being stolen or damaged? Why, well, of course, presumably at night you went into a hotel room or a B&B room somewhere and the bike just had to sort of live outside. Um, well, sometimes I put the bike in my room, depending on where I was. Um, not, not rehearsed that remark. Go on. It, I, I stayed in so many eclectic places. Um, the only time I sort of left the bike out on the street was um, probably the third or fourth day, and this was in a place called uh, Roanoke. Is that how you pronounce it? Roanoke in Virginia, near. Yeah, yeah near Front Royal. Day four or day five. Yeah, and I had to leave it, leave it in the street. And actually, that there was a funny thing that happened from that, because I left it in the street, and I was looking down onto the street and seeing the bike, and all I had was basically a chain to tie it. I didn't have a cover or anything. And of course, you know, it's a trike Bonneville, pretty new, you know, it would have created a little bit of tension. Um, so when I woke up the next morning, the first thing I did was obviously look outside the window, and the bike, thank God, was still there. Um, and I, I wouldn't say I was paranoid, but obviously I went downstairs to kick the tires to make sure they hadn't been punctured or anything like that. And in, that was probably one of the occasions when the first sort of encounters with people happened. And I think this was the, for me, a lot of it, a lot of questions people now ask me is, you know, what sort of conversations or, or did you meet a lot of people? You know, and the reason for travelling solo is that you are not so much forced, but you, 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 you have to t talk to other people or to, to strangers for help or to get some advice. And as I was kicking the tyres of the, of the bike that morning, I looked from the, from the side of my eye and I was uh, seeing these four black guys, big guys, walking down the street. And this must have been like six o'clock in the morning. And I thought, um, okay, Zoe, be cool. Just look like you're, you're, you're doing something with the bike. And... What I found travelling so is never go by appearances. It's the people you think are going to be probably the most dangerous or, or the worst actually ironically come out as being the, the helpers or the saints or the, you know. And these guys were actually, they were builders. They parked their bikes around the corner and they were going along to the building site and they saw this incredible bike and they were just curious. You know, and they actually said, can you start the bike? We want to hear the engine. So that was nice. Which leads <laughs> me to the obvious question, which I haven't asked you so far. You said clearly the, the Triumph Bonneville is, is very rare in the States. Well, not very rare, but it's, it's less seen than the, the Harley. Okay, but on the same basis, a Harley Davidson will be very rare in this country, and probably still is. Um, did you, how soon did you meet other bikers on the road? And... Presumably most of them were on American Harleys or Yamaha's or all those what else. I, I thought, I thought America, I'm going to be seeing bikers all the time, you know, and I, as I'm sure we go through the slides, you know, there were, there were two occasions I thought we'd be seeing it. I was going to be going up through the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, which is normally a great place for the bikers. Um, I was going to, the dream was to have the Bonneville, go to the Bonneville Salt Flats. I thought that day leaving Salt Lake City, there would be swarms of them, you know, um, there were times when, as I said, it was two or three days I didn't see anybody else. And actually, I didn't see a lot of other bikers. It was incredible. I got the distinct impression from this that that 
surprised you throughout the trip. You really never got used to that, did you? That there were only one or two occasions when you found a group of them. Yeah, and I, and I, again, you can you know you, you stop and you talk to these people. And in fact, going through the Blue Ridge Mountains, I stopped at one of the stops. You know, looking over out on these beautiful landscapes and these hills going on forever in a day, and start talking to these guys. And then three days later, we've gone a bit further down through the Blue Ridge Mountains, and you meet these people again. You know, and I think one day I was in um, another city or another town, and someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Hi, I remember you." You know, so um, that sort of happened. But there was really no massive, like you see here in Europe and the UK, there, there was nothing, you know, I was thinking there were going to be so many bikes, for example, going to the Bonneville Flats that morning, on that Saturday morning. Nobody, nothing. Right, now I'm going to try, let's see what the next slide is, and then I think Zoe, let's see what it is for a start, and if it's of no use to us, I, I know you'll have a, a little segment of the book to read, which has got a story to tell, so... What does that tell us, by the way? Is it, do we just ignore that for a Those are just toilets. I don't know why they chose that picture. <laughs> 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 just... <laughs> okay, well, this is, this is actually probably quite, quite timely. Um, this Martin Luther King, it's the hotel where, obviously, he was um, shot. But the reason I think they possibly wanted to choose this was it's I'd just arrived in Memphis and I'd come from Nashville um, and I love music and I and I love country music and you know it's you know they've got you know such soulful lyrics and um, the day I left Nashville I had quite a long journey to take up to Memphis um, it was going to be about two hundred and ten miles but I'd made I'd sort of said to myself, I'm going to compromise, I'm going to actually ride along some of the highways really just to get there, because I was going to be staying with friends in Memphis. Um, and ironically, along this highway, thinking it was going to be boring, something quite interesting happened. So if you, would you like me to read just a little bit of the excerpt here? Um, and this is obviously, we're, we're now almost 2,000 miles into the trip. The ever-increasing heat and concentration are slowly getting to me. So just another 80 miles further, I pull off the road and park under some shaded roof next to a gas station stall. I turn the engine off and sit on the ground next to the bike with my back leaning up against a large white ice chest. Suddenly, out of nowhere, in that silent heat, I hear a rumbling, heavy-duty sound vibrating the ground beneath me. The sun is hitting hard directly in front of me. I see nothing. Blinded by the light, I raise my hands over my squinting, tired eyes to figure out what the hell I could possibly be hearing. And then a mirage appears, coming closer through the haze. In drives a massive old black rat bike with a cool boho traveller and what looks like all his worldly possessions tied and stacked onto it. Me, the old me, I've never seen anything like this before. In the breathless heat, he comes to a shuddering halt next to me. The traveller casually gets off, sits in the precious shade, and silently takes something from his weather-beaten jacket to eat. He's also escaping this oppressive heat. Rat bikes. No bullshit involved. Only the minimum done to keep them good to ride, 
No time-consuming cleaning, washing, polishing, or adding shining bits that do nothing. Rats and other bikes could come from different planets. But here was a story, as everything was not quite what it seemed. I notice him looking over at me. I'm strangely fascinated and drawn to wanting to know more. This is what traveling on the open road does to you. It opens your curiosity and makes you a braver person. I pluck up the courage, walk over and sit quietly next to him. And what I'm about to hear will stick with me for the rest of the trip. He looks up from his own trance. My American accent's not that good. Hi, from what I can hear, you ain't from around here, he says in a slow, deep tone. Me? No, I started back on the East Coast, heading over to Memphis today with a plan to hit the West Coast in about six weeks. He casually and slowly nods his head, like this statement is nothing unusual. The first person who has reacted like this since I left Boston all those weeks ago. So for some strange reason, the flow of conversation is easy on this hot day, and he opens up, telling me how he was previously into drink and drugs, now lives in a caravan in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and has a sister who lives in Ipswich, back in the UK. <laughs> he travels writing stories and painting along the way. Without any prompting, he then starts, quite naturally, reeling off detailed advice on various states. Remember, Oklahoma is a windy place, so try and drive it at night. And if you see a storm coming in from each side, as the country out there is so big, it'll give you enough time to stop on the open roads and take shelter or even find a random tornado shelter along the bigger highways. And through Monument Valley, Remember, it's an Indian reserve, so be careful when stopping the bike as there may be broken beer bottles on the roads. We wish each other well with a simple nod and friendly smile. I start the bike up and head out further west with the extra confidence given to me by this total stranger. This small moment will prove to be priceless in preparing me for what I will later encounter on the roads ahead. That deserves the first round of applause, <laughs> This is a girl who assured me uh, earlier on this evening that this was her first book. She didn't write, and she didn't really know what to do. Well, all I can say is that's pretty damn good for a novice. And there's an awful lot of it. All It's all very, very readable. Uh, incidentally, and this is... Uh, I'll take my royalty when I go. If some of you here don't buy a load of copies of this book before you go, you don't have a heart, I can tell you there. So, okay, so we stopped at this point, and I, and I said to you more than once this evening, there must have been some wonderful, not wonderful, but fascinating places you visited. This was one of them. I mean, okay, nobody's really go, going to go to the, the death place of Martin Luther King for fun, mm. but you thought you, you should see it. I, I it, was just, it, was, it, was, it was an emotional, I mean, next door, and I'm sure you all know next door, is the... Um, the museum for um, civil rights—that was very emotional. Um, I, I follow so, civil rights a little bit, and, I, and the fact that um, what had happened in the rioting, um, the pictures of these desperate people, the the people who'd been striking, the binmen, um, and all the stories about that. Um, but I was very lucky, and Memphis does have a heart, and it's 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 very sad at the moment that it's gone through such bad times. Um, you were very disappointed by the state of Memphis, weren't you? You didn't like it very much. Yeah, well, back in 2012, it was still going through a rough time. And um, 
it was one of those places where, although I was with a local friend and she lived in Memphis and she was a Memphis person, um, it's not the sort of place that you um, you kind of walk around on your own at. Um, and in fact, she was quite um, savvy, but she even she got us uh, when we went down into Beale Street. And Field Street, as you guys I'm sure know, is fantastic. On a Friday night, most nights they have the bikers come in uh, on the Beale Street, and uh, you know it's a real party place, really, really good. Um, but we were driven down, and we were told quite strictly that the driver, who was a, another woman who did that part time, she would come and collect us after our meal around midnight. Um, and that was, a, I'm not going to give everything out about the story, but um, we did actually have a very, very close encounter with guns. And thank you very much, that was as near as you wanted to get to and that. We, we, you know, we heard, there, there was actually, and I will tell the story because it is interesting, so we, we, we were picked up, um, we went back through the um, back streets of Memphis to get back home, um, which used to be these beautiful, large homes which are now derelict and there's nothing there. And we stopped at these traffic lights and there was a, almost like a click on the side of the door. And the girl who was driving basically said, oh, that must have just been a stone or something tucked or whatever. And we were in one of these um, utility four-wheel drives, so we were quite high up. And when we got back to Liz's house, my friend, um, we walked around to the uh, obviously the driver's seat, and it was actually a bullet. Oh, and what we're saying is that had we ridden in a lower vehicle, that bullet would have gone through the window. Or if you'd been on a motorbike, it would have gone through you. And what we think it was, it was obviously we were on a cross. You know, someone had fired something, and this bullet had literally just gone our way by accident. My immediate reaction to this, of course, is that this confirms yet again what I've always thought on my many visits to the States. There's no, just, there's no such thing as one North America. No. There are lots of different North America, aren't there? And you must, you must have reinforced that opinion the, more, the further you drove through it. It's such an eclectic place. You know, when people say, I don't want to go, I'm not promoting, I don't work for the American Tourist Board, I promise you. But, you know, I like, I like eclectic things. I mean, I like things which are extreme. Um, but the whole continent is extreme. You know, most people think, oh, it's a boring place. You know, you've got Los Angeles, New York. What's in the middle? There's nothing. Well, you know, from what I personally encountered, the weather patterns, the topography, the different kinds of people, you know, you, you are talking about a continent, but you are talking about an incredible diversity, um, you know, from food, from culture, from art, from, from pretty much anything imaginable. And my impression also is that an awful lot of Americans, because, this, because it's such a big continent, an awful lot of Americans are very insular in, in what they know about and think about. Am I right? Did that, was that it, an impression it, you it got? Was, it was fascinating, because I did make an effort not to try and stay in hotels, but to try and stay at places where I could you know, communicate or, or stay with people who were local to that area. And it, there wasn't one time, and I, in fact I can count it on more than one hand, when people were amazed that I was actually, you know, at some point I was actually embarrassed to say I was coming from Boston. I had to actually downplay it. I had to say I was coming from, you know, sometimes it was just the town or the state. Because a lot of them actually haven't even gone outside their own state. You know, and I think, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's, it's, is it 70 or 80%, 70% of American citizens don't have passports? I heard the figure was even higher than that. The vast majority of Americans have never left their country mm. at all. 
Okay, let's, let's go back to, we're all petrol heads here, we are I hope, uh, let's go back to talking about the bike a bit. Um, presumably that even a modern retro bike, and let's be honest, the Triumph Bonneville that you rode was made only two or three years ago, but still it was an oldish design, there was quite a bit of regular maintenance for you to worry about. <laughs> I don't, you're not, not rehearsed, I promise you, but why did you laugh at me then? Because I know nothing about maintenance, and I think I took the wrong equipment anyway. But I, I was funny because I, I thought, well, the research I did do, which I think most people would have done, you know, thinking, right, I, I realised I wouldn't possibly be able to take the tyres out or, or, or do it. What I did do is I did research. I found out where all the Triumph dealerships were. Um, I took a copy of all those dealerships, and I made sure that... Obviously, um, that if I did need them, I would have their contact details. After I'd done, in fact, just before I got into Memphis, which was just about 2,000 miles, I did actually call the Triumph dealership in Memphis, and I said, you know, I've just come in from Boston, could you, you know, could I bring the bike to be looked at? So they then looked at it, and they were overjoyed that it would be part of the adventure, and they actually didn't charge me, so that was great. Um, but I didn't actually, I didn't really take much stuff with me. Let me, let me now read from the book again for just one page. Uh, this is written by the dear girl when she came back. Supplies and maintenance kit for the bike. 8mm, 19mm and 24mm combination spanners for chain adjustment. Park Tool USA, AWS 9 pocket screwdriver kit, set of Allen keys, bottle of Scott chain oil lubrication, 1 litre bottle of Mobile, Mobile Extra engine oil, uh, Two back seat bolts, and it goes on. Only then says string. Oh, good, you were well thought about here. But the point is, you took what I would call the um, the every housewife it'll get your home kit in, in car terms, in, in motorbike terms. Um, did you ever get it wrong? I mean, did, did did the bike ever come close to coming to a grinding halt because you'd forgotten to do something? Um. Yeah, there, there, were, there were two occasions where I think it was a lot of it had to do with the, the weather. There, there was, at some point, I was probably going through. Possibly a lot of dust about, wouldn't there? Temperatures which were exceeding 90 degrees. And there was one point I came to a stop at a gas station and I literally thought the tank was going to explode. There, were, there was something very, very wrong with it because it, was, it, was, it seemed like it was overheating. And I was really worried that it just didn't sound right. Um, and again, social media. I had no friends in America who I knew had bikes. I had no one I could talk to. So I incredibly Skyped um, somebody I knew in Rio de Janeiro who had bikes. As you thinking, As you thinking can they give me some advice as to why, you know, this is, this is it, was, it, was, it was, something wasn't right. And he basically said it's because the temperature is basically heated the oil. There's, you know, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Um, but it was, it was little things like that. And then I stopped somewhere in New Mexico, um, and I thought it was time to put some oil in. And the, normally on the Triumph um, oil tank, you can just open it with a fifty pence piece. And I hadn't bought a fifty pence piece, so I tried to open it, couldn't. And I had to ask somebody at the hotel reception. A guy and I said I can't open it. I'm thinking that stupid girl. It's because it's a girl, isn't it? Anyway, he couldn't bloody do it, so he had to get this winch or this this long pole, and he literally stood up with the thing by the bike, and he was literally with his foot 
you know, trying to get this screw on. And I guess they must have just tightened it so much because it was coming from Los Angeles that they didn't want, obviously, the oil to spill when it was being transported. But, um, in fact, the good news here is that, uh, by Gaddis British and all that stuff, it performed extremely well, didn't it, for the whole 6,000 miles. Am I right? And I think I'm right. There was no occasion when you were actually stuck. There was no was occasion. It, yeah, do you want to maybe click and there might be some other pictures to Let's see, if we, let's see what else we can produce. Come on, there you go. Okay, well that's oh. going down in through to... This was when we got into Hot Springs, so obviously Clinton's place and these beautiful spa. So yeah, so that was going up, and then if you want to just turn these... And I think you certainly can talk about that. This, well, there's a couple of reasons for this. This is um, when people say, did you do Route 66? I specifically was trying to avoid Route 66 because, it's a, for me, it's a little bit of a cliche, maybe because I've lived in America, but I didn't want to really do it. But there was a certain point when I got to Amarillo, Texas, uh, when I was staying in this um, really cool place that have these massive, big 72-ounce steaks. You can eat it within an hour, I think it's free. Um, but more interesting for me, it was a place which was a horse hotel. <laughs> so the cowboys would arrive, and when I checked in that night, they actually said, would you like a room for the, for the horse? <laughs> and you said, what? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, but the interesting thing was is that I took over 2,000 pictures, and all these pictures, incredibly, are taken with an iPhone. Um, I mean, the quality is incredible, but I just thought it was quite nice because it's the bike, that's the Bonneville, that's the T100, but I, I took it by the, the Hereford Bull because I'm originally from Hereford, so I just thought that was quite quirky. But yeah, all these kind of strange things, and it's kind of, people think, you know, you only sort of see these things, like these massive, great, big, giant boots on Route 66, but actually there are quirky things all over the place. I think, well, I've already... Um Rush over without thinking about it is the number of times you were always worried about where the next tank full of gas of petrol was going to come from. Yeah, and and I've not realised, being a car man, I've not realised, of course, that um, petrol tank capacity on a bike like that is really pretty small, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I, again, being naive, but I think that's possibly the sweet thing about it is I, don't re I didn't realise that you, know, you can have these in incredibly large, extreme endurance motorbikes which can do like over 500 miles on the tank. This bike did just over 100. I didn't realize that this was gonna be a problem, specifically when I was going over the Blue Ridge Mountains, specifically when I was going through Texas, um, and there was another time too. Um, but this is the state, surely there's fuel everywhere. Well, this is what you think, isn't it? Um, the lesson I learned was that every single time, particularly getting out from to the East Coast, every single time, I saw an exit to get, you know, petrol, I went and got it, even if it meant it was a detour of 30 or 40 miles. Quite amazing. So that, that must have uh, ruined your days in many cases. There must have been times when you were, even you being a laid-back lady, when you were sort of sitting there thinking, hmm, and, and looking, looking at your fuel gauge, do they have fuel gauges on both on both sides? Well, this was another thing. I, I, there wasn't a few, well, it was, it, it was different to the bike I had in the UK. It had an electric gauge. So I like the old-fashioned things. You literally manually turn it so you know how much petrol you've got in your tank. And this didn't. This was just electric. So I literally had to write, I mean, again, being naive, I didn't know what else to do. 
When I filled up the tank, I wrote the mileage on my hand, knowing that in a hundred miles I'd have to start looking for petrol. <coughs> so at the end of the day, normally my hand was full of numbers. So on a, so on, on a, on a, on a sensibly long day, you're probably looking at three or four fueling stops. At least, day. yeah. Oh, you poor darling. Um, it, not not the sort of easy easiest of long distance trips to plan for, and you couldn't you couldn't pre-plan those, could you? Because there were parts of this route I know from what you said, where talking about we're talking about Monument Valley, aren't we? Where there was very little fuel for a long distance yeah. around. Mm. Um, were you again ever close to um, having problems? Yeah, and again, stupidly um, and ironically, before I set out, and this is the this is the stiff upper lip of the British people, isn't it? I, I met somebody, again, it was somebody, another long-distance endurance girl rider. She was Puerto Rican. She lived in outside of Boston. Her and I met up because she was also riding a T100, and she was just about to organise a trip down to Central America. And she said to me at the time, she said, right, Zoe, I'm going to give you this little, um, you call it like top-up flask, like a, you know, and it, it'll probably hold about a litre of, of, of petrol. Um, it's your present from me. And I was, I kind of said, oh, I can't take that, you know. So I actually declined that, which was in some ways stupid, wasn't it? <laughs> but even a litre of, even a litre of fuel would only have kept going for, what, another 10 miles at most. Yeah, but it could have potentially have, have, have helped. But I mean, there, there were times when I was, I was worried. I mean, particularly going through Texas, you know, there were roads miles and miles. And I was, I think the worst and the most frightening was when the indicator was starting to go red. And I just didn't see it. I didn't. The, the problem was is there was no one else on the roads, and particularly in Texas, you know, I was starting to see literally these cattle carcasses on the road. You know, these dead. And I was thinking, shit. You know, they they've died of thirst. I think I'm going to too. Yeah. <laughs> was there? Uh, we'll let you lighten a load of lighten things in a minute. Was there ever a point when uh, this sort of when this sort of thing happened when you thought, I can't. I just can't. I'm going to go home. Did you ever get really yes. down? Yes. I, um, I probably cried about two or three times, but probably the, the, the worst time I was emotionally um, very upset was I had um, had this dream, as they say, to get to Bonneville Salt Flats. Um, and up until then, I'd done about 4,000 miles. I arrived in Salt Lake City and I, for some strange reason, I'd had, I was thinking I took a day out, so I was walking along the streets of Salt Lake City, a beautiful place, very eclectic, um, and I started rubbing my eye, and um, the pain started getting so excruciating that I knew there was a problem, and over a period of about one or two hours, walking down these streets, I became basically blinded, I, the pain was so bad, I was sitting on the pavement and I was crying, I, and I didn't know what to do. And I was thinking, there's something very obviously something very wrong here. I'm going to have to. I don't. I don't know. So I, I was waiting to try and get a cab back to the little place I was staying at. Um, I'd taken my. I'd literally just chucked my contact lenses out onto the street. Couldn't see anything. Oh, you had thrown your contact lenses away. You thrown them out. Yeah, because my eye was hurting so much. Oh, okay. Anyway, I find out. Cut a very long story short. I then go and walk through Salt Lake City and, and find. Luckily, a glass uh, shop, a spectacle glass shop, and there's an optician there who's just coming from another city. He's there literally by pure fluke. And he looks at my eye and he says, you've got an ulcer on that eye. He says, 
said, you have basically been wearing those contact lenses for too long. The dirt, the everything has gone underneath it, and basically it's just uh, literally a few millimetres from your, you know, iris. So he's, he said, you're going to have to take some very, very strong medication. And the first question I said was, but can I ride the bike tomorrow? Because tomorrow I was going to get to the Bonneville Salt Flats. And he walked me to the, um, the, 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 the chemist and prescribed me with this very, very strong um, medication, which I had to sort of do drops for, I think it was every hour for the next week or so or whatever. Um, and I obviously had to start wearing glasses, and this is why I now wear glasses, because my eye was damaged. Um, but I find, you know, the next day I did set off, but it was the most excruciating pain, and, and I cried for a number of reasons. I cried for the pain, but I also cried because of perhaps, as, as, as the story says, one of your goal bust, was I that day going to go bust and the whole trip finish? I think we're going to lighten the uh, tone again with, a, with, a, with a, an extract from what Zoe had to think about the Bonneville Soul Flats. Let me just play with this uh, device and see what the next slide is going to look like. Does that come after the Bonneville Soul Flats? Or that's can we after, talk about um, that that's after Amarillo's. That's, that's Cadillac Ranch, which I'm sure you guys know and you know very quickly the story. It was done um, by a collector. Every single Cadillac, the wings are a different shape because of the different years they were built. And actually, because the Amarillo city has grown so so quickly, they've actually had to move those. But it's a very boho sort of art structure where people can go in with their own, you know, paint cans and, you know. But that, that was beautiful. That was about six o'clock in the morning. So the the shadow and it's this just beautiful sky. And and to make it very clear, those are real halves of motor car rather yeah. than plastic or. Oh, yeah, they're real. Or, or Paintings, they're real, aren't they? Yeah. Well, they were real once when they were alive. Let us, let us now then say, okay, you've, you've now struggled uh, along the trip for, let's work out how many days it was um, so far. We're getting towards the Bonneville Salt Flats, which is all very romantic because the name of the Triumph is the Bonneville. Where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Uh, we're, we're nearly four weeks in, into it, day 26, Salt Lake City. So 26 days after you left Boston. You finally get to the uh, Bonneville Soul Flats, which, we is, don't know yet, but which yes. is a big deal to you, isn't it? Tell, tell me what you're going to read as another extract from your book. Okay, well, this is, this is now 4,000 miles into the trip. Um, I thought I was going to be the sexy chick, you know, not wearing glasses to the Bonneville Soul Flats, being escorted by all these bikers, and it's actually totally the opposite. Um, and I think what I wanted to do is I wanted to give the feel and to write the feel of this place um, because of its historicness and to what it represents to a lot of people. Um, and I, it's, it's just a quick, a quick sort of overview, but I think it, it'll sort of relate to um, what this place is all about. So I'm leaving um, with my glasses on. I'm leaving Salt Lake City, uh, and the intention that day is to ride 254 miles over to Ely in Nevada. Yep. So I get back on, enter the highway again, accelerate quickly, getting up into fifth gear, and start cruising at about 75 miles per hour along this straight desert road for another 120 miles. 
After about an hour, the place is now flattened out with the true white salt plains coming into view on either side of the road and going as far as the eye can see. Then the first sign for the flats appears. I turn off the highway into a small car park. I get off and look across, far away into the horizon ahead of me. I breathe deeply, trying to absorb the importance of this place. This is incredible, a vast expanse of whiteness going out into the distance. I feel like an explorer arriving on another planet with no one else there. I look around and can actually see the curvature of the Earth. And apparently there are only one of seven places around the world that you can see this. This is just an initial viewing point. The actual entrance onto the flats is about another four miles further along where the famed measured mile is located. World land speed record times are averaged out over two runs of the measured mile within a one hour time period, and one run needs to be done in each direction. All I want to do now is ride further and get onto the flats to the famed starting point. No one else is here. I have the place to myself. I can't resist the temptation. Sorry, I have, have at long last achieved something I thought impossible. I'm riding a Triumph Bonneville out over the Bonneville salt flats. I turn the throttle and accelerate. That felt good. <laughs> I'm greeted out here by total serenity, stillness and quiet with miles of white going out to the horizon. Now, should I actually take the risk and bike out? This would be a time of year when hopefully it would be pretty dry, but along the edge of the salt crust, vehicles are known to get stuck due to underlying mud, a risk. Unlike other attractions in the US, there are absolutely no facilities available on the flats, no fuel, food or lodging you're on your own. I don't want to tempt fate, so I carefully park the bike, take a bottle of water, and start walking out some distance across the miles of salt. I'm walking out to the home of the world's fastest speedway. The salt which lies flat, hard, and dry is the best surface for automobile racing ever discovered. Not a single sound to be heard except the crunching and cracking of the salt beneath my boots. My long, pure black shadow lies out in front of me against the pure white ground. I stop, stand still, and look around. Will I ever have this kind of experience and feeling of remoteness and tranquility again? I have a lot of mileage still to do to get down to Ely, but now, just for this moment, being here and living it is just too valuable to rush. It has taken me four years to get to where I am at this present moment. I don't want to rush, but I know I need to leave. I stand quietly, breathe in the hot air, and then slowly turn and walk back. I'm ever so jealous that I can't write words like that. That was so nicely done. That begins to sound to me like um, one of the highest of high points of your trip. You'd obviously be looking forward to it. 
and you, you really, you were so relieved to be there, and, it, and presumably it, it didn't let you down at all in what it delivered. I, again, I, I, I was thinking it was going to be lots of trucks. In fact, funny enough, just as I was leaving, um, and in fact the picture on the back of the book, was, that's the only picture of me with the bike, it was because there was a caravan arriving literally the moment I was leaving, and I asked them to take a picture of me. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't have happened. But uh, yes, of course it was a highlight. I think it was, you know, the play on words, the Bonneville on the Bonneville Flats, you know, the racing history the Bonneville Flats has had. Um, Yes, without doubt it was, but there were other highlights too, which were just as mesmerising and just as astonishing and surprising. Well, it's, it's, it's not in the chronology of the evening, but now let me therefore ask you, give us one or two of the other big highlights. We've mentioned one or two already, I guess, but what were the other ones that you will treasure forever? Oh, I think one of the questions people say to me is, what was the best experience or what was the best thing you saw or did? And I haven't got one, you know, there isn't. Every single day for me was a treasure. Every single day for me was a present, a gift. Um, it was the present, you know, that was it. Um, but there are certain things that were amazing. Um, I don't know if there's another picture that we can possibly go to. Um, I was in... Okay, that's, that's actually going up towards... That was up in the Rockies, um, where we went up to probably the highest um, state capital town, which is very, very much... Um, I think it's closed, actually, during, during the winter because of the snow. Um, but this was a place which um, is called Silverton, Colorado. Um, totally desolate place. And that was the old train that was being going up from Durango. But the highlights, I would say, um, in New Mexico, there's uh, a, I think it's a 1,600-foot volcanic plug called the Shiprock. Um, and it's almost like a UFO in the middle of a desert. That was very, very surreal. And again, because I wasn't using sat-nav, I had to stop, and that was on one occasion when I started speaking to a native Navajo Indian, an old guy with emphatic black thing and a, a, a barking dog, and he was talking to me about lots of different things. Um, I absolutely adored, there's a place close to the arches in Utah called Dead Horse Point, um, and I rode You're not up, serious. Yeah, not and I serious. Rode, I'll tell you why. I rode up on, on, it was probably the only time I actually wanted to get to a place as the sun was rising. And it's a very, very high plateau which looks out over the Canyonlands. And it's absolutely beautiful. Um, but it's called Dead Horse Point because um, it was a place where they would round up the wild horses. And there was a point at the top of this cliff um, looking down to the Colorado River where there was like a a natural corral, so the cowboys would bring all the horses in, they'd select the horses they wanted to sell or use themselves, and they'd li literally then leave the gates open for the wild horses themselves to then just get back out onto the, onto the plains. And what happened the once was that the, the horses weren't able to escape, and so they basically took their own lives and just jumped over the cliffs. So that's why it's called Dead Horse Point, I believe. Um, and I think going further through, the, 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 the points of interest were there was, um, I don't know, because I don't want to erase that, but this is the Bonneville Flats. And, you know, these roads that went, this was in the, um, in Nevada, this were all these places that were so, 
for, for, for any photographer on these beautiful places, but these roads, and this is no exaggeration, this wasn't the only road that I saw that looked like that, but um, the highlights have to be um, along a road like that. I had bikers that came to my rescue. There was two or three high days and so I sort of was looking for petrol and they took out through one of their tanks some spare petrol. Um, there's a place as we approached and left Nevada, um, which intersects, intersects Nevada and California, the Sierra Nevada. And three months of the year, there's a place where there's a, there's a route over Sierra Nevada called the Tioga Pass, which I'm sure you know. Um, and that in itself is amazing because you have to time it right because of the snow, because of its altitude. Um, it's only open about three months of the year. And I was able to, I had a good time, I was able to go over it at that time. And again, it was another point um, to remember that just because it was the summer didn't mean it was still going to be warm, it was freezing. And that was another time I was crying because I had, you know, it was freezing cold. Um, and I, know that I think another highlight was when I got um, through to the west coast, um, there is the famous, I think we all know, this is where I finished up, but in, in Monterey, um, and Big Sur, but Monterey, there's, there's a very famous place um, between Carmel and Monterey uh, called the 17 Mile Drive. I don't know if any of you guys like golf or, you know, there's some of the best golf courses there. Um, and little did I realise, again, sometimes it's good to be naive and not read up too much about these things, but the 17 mile drive is one of the most luxurious residential private driveways uh, along that coast. Um, you know, the houses of millions and millions of dollars, um, these beautiful, you know, world championship golf courses. Since we're where we are. Uh, St George's Hill, but much larger than St George's Hill, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, I've been staying up in... Um, up in Carmel that evening, and I wanted to go. I was, I was naively saw the map. Oh, do the 17 mile drive, and I got to the uh, the gate, um, and for some very very bizarre reason, it must have been destiny. The guy basically asked me if I was a resident or if I wanted to go through it. He gave me a little ticket, but apparently it's illegal for any motorbike to go through the 17 mile drive, and the reason being is that apparently the residents um, had, don't like bikers uh, because they make too much noise. But I did actually ride past some golf courses where there were tourists in you know, coaches which were making more noises than the, the bikes. But the interesting thing was is that I was very naive, went through the 70 mile drive very naively on my motorbike, and I was all of a sudden seeing these flashlights behind me, and it's a police car, and he's wanting me to stop on the side of the road. And he said, hi, ma'am, um, why are you in the 17-mile drive? Why are you on your bike here? And I said, well, I'm just having a little look around. <laughs> and? He said, it's illegal. No bikes are allowed. And I was really fortunate because the guy at the gate had given me a pass, the same pass he would have given to a car to go and visit it. So actually, it was okay. But he, he did say to me, he said, you need to leave now. He said, you must get off this route, you know, and get out immediately. So, uh, so the guy on the gate had made a mistake. I wonder if he still had a job at the end of I that I don't day. know, I don't know, but I mean, and, and, and I just find it very bizarre, so, so, so bikes aren't allowed, cars are, coaches are, um, yeah. Followed by, have a nice day. Have a nice day, yeah. By this time, of course, the, 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 the difference again in climate, the difference again in prosperity must have hit you very hard. 
My impression is, from certainly from reading the book and knowing the states as I do, the middle bit, the, the sort of New Mexico, some of Texas, some of, some of Nevada, is fairly empty, it's fairly uncivilized, it's fairly undeveloped, and yet suddenly you come over the Rockies into California, where everyone's a millionaire, if you know what I mean. And you, that you, you, you made a lot of that here, didn't you? And that was it got to you. It got to me, and I was I was very upset because I, it was I, I could literally see it coming. As soon as I was approaching the the Sierra Nevada, I was starting to see changes in people's mindsets and the way people were talking, the people were acting, and it was almost as though people the the the, the, the trip almost finished or ended for me as soon as I got into California. Because as soon as I got to California, I was no longer Which is the in the wild. I was no, no longer on the adventure, really. Right. Because it was so commercialised and so... It, it was just back to... I don't know, Western world, Western... So it, it, it was too civilised for me, from what I had experienced, from where I'd been. And yet you'd been to California before. I'm yeah. In business, I'm sure you have. Mm. So, I guess this all reconfirm what we've been saying earlier on, that, that there are lots of different Americas and you seem to have um, experienced almost all of them on this trip. I wouldn't say all of them, but I certainly was lucky to organise a trip where I did see an eclectic range of things, people, um, from staying with you know, gay cowboys in Oklahoma City who were champion rodeo riders to, you know, Little old lady in her own cottage, you know, making me tea in the morning, you know, to hold. Wasn't me. I think it might have been you, my, my dear, but never mind. So, yes, I, I think that there's an eclectic. You know, but I, again, I, I've just come and I'm sure you're going to ask me this question as to, you know, the second trip. Um, and again, going through other areas there, which were totally different from this trip. Well, the, my, my immediate, uh, we're, we're by no means ending this, of course, but my immediate wind-up to what we've got at the moment is, having got to the end of this, uh, you presumably sat down and went, oh, for a little while, but you now are going to become another world traveller, because I'm sure you've got something else that you want to do. What, what, you, said, what you said here, and you said you've changed your mind, was you were, you were interested in going the full length of South America, but that idea has been abandoned for now. This sort of wonderful trip, what was the next one? What is the next one that you have in mind to do? That's a very common question. I, it's, um, it's a question first of all, finding the money. I'll take money. it back if you don't like it. <laughs> no, I like it. Um, I, about a year after I came back from the US, um, and it was a few months after the book got published, Triumph um, contacted me and invited me up to the Triumph show here in the UK, where I there met, there met the Triumph USA people. Mm -hmm. And incredibly, the largest market for Triumph bikes is America. You know, that's their number one market. And they're based in Atlanta, Georgia, and I met up with the, the VP of International Business, and basically they, they asked if I would come back to the US. Um, they would provide another Triumph T100. Um, if I would go up to the barber show where the famous barber racetrack is right. in Leeds, Alabama, just outside Birmingham, Alabama, which is incredible. Um, it's got the largest collection of motorbikes, fantastic racetrack, and they organise this amazing show over a period of three days where these thousands of bikes and people congregate. Um, so I went over there um, 
did a 3,000 mile trip, um, two thirds of it with what I call a road dog companion, which is the American term for a traveling companion who happened to be um, also on a T100. Um, so Triumph invited me over, we rode up, him and I we rode up on the two bikes. And again, it was a very different kind of escapade because he was from the local area of central Florida, so he knew the back roads. He again was somebody, he's my publisher, he was again not using sat-nav, using old national Geo, um, old maps. Um, so it was a fun trip, but again, it was sort of taking responsibility away from me to be responsible for organising the route. So it was, it, was, it was quite nice in that respect. Um, and so after that trip, Again, with no intention to write, um, people again sort of said to me, you know, we like the concept, the idea that you've travelled just for two weeks, you know, but you've also got stories in it because of the way you travel, the way you talk and meet people. Um, so I then started writing again, and the second book, which came out last month, is called Southern Escapades, and that talks about the Georgia, Alabama, the extremes, wealth and poverty, you know, areas of extreme poverty in Alabama to areas of extreme wealth in Sarasota. Your intelligence frightens the hell out of me, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that was the last trip, and um, there are things planned. I am thinking possibly to go down. Um, I'm still trying to get a bike at the moment, um, but there is a trip planned in May. There's going to be a lot going on. Now, Steve, you're hovering, which is good, because I, I, I was looking for you anyway. He doesn't speak for very long. I'm sure you will realise that now. I'd like to open the floor up for questions, because I'm sure there must be some that have come out of the uh, talk this evening. I have to say, I think the highlight for me is you actually reading those extracts from the book, because I think that brings a whole different dimension. Um, having written them, and then read them so eloquently. I think that's fantastic. Thank you for that. So, ladies and gentlemen, any questions? Uh, we've got a microphone there, so if you can. Uh... Yeah, you said about lots of encounters with the population. Did you have any encounters with wildlife? I did. That's a really good question. And in fact, it was the first time I've ever been asked that question. But yes, I've got a fantastic story. Um, would you like to hear it quickly? Um, be quick. It'll be very, very quick. It was in the Rockies. Um, I was going, again, just through these forests, and I literally came across a bear in the middle of the road. And uh, it was not a time for taking photographs or stopping. And it was that one time when I thought, God, I hope the bike doesn't bloody break down. Was he a big, was he a big bear? It was a, a massive bear, and it literally just ambled across the road. And it obviously, apparently, I did a bit of research on bears hearing, and they do, they've got incredible hearing so they'd obviously it had obviously heard the bike coming from quite a long distance and went around this corner and this bear was in the middle of the road and I just didn't know what to do so I kind of went on the other side and it kind of slowly moped up the hill but that was that was pretty scary eagles I mean yeah wonderful wildlife I was looking out for wild mustang horses which I found and saw in Nevada which was gorgeous too another, another question from the floor anyone else I'm not sure that mic's working take that one Shipping. Try it. Hi. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. Hi. It's uh, interesting, and obviously you read. Um, it sounds to me like you've just written this from memory. But did you actually every day write a diary? You just did it. I, I, I had. Uh, I was doing the blog 
but I, I, the only reason I did a blog was more, mostly for the photographs because I wanted the, the visual. Um, and I actually have a very, very bad memory. So visual things help me. Um, and I didn't actually, the first few days, yes, I was quite doing, I, did, I kind of wrote a few things down. Um, but actually, no, I wasn't writing. But what I was doing is I took over 2,000 photos. And because along the routes I was sort of, you know, taking maybe little snippets of leaflets or things like that, that sort of brought the memory back. But it was the photography, it was the photographs I took that almost brought things back to life, which helped me uh, visualise these things again and then be able to start the research to start writing it. David. Don't touch it. It's on. I'll just... <laughs> Hello, Zoe. Hello. Um, going back to what you were saying right at the beginning, uh, your interview connection, whatever, um, the things that interest me really are um, the whole sort of aspect of the journey and itself. So I've kind of two questions really. One is, what is the most the most surprising thing about America it's diversity how, how many different ones there in, are yeah. in so many levels it's extreme climates um, the friendliness of people I think there were a lot more positives than there were negatives and I think that that and I always say that to people and travellers is that don't always believe what other people tell you. I think you have to experience things for yourself, even if it does potentially mean taking a risk. But what I hate is when people say to me, oh, don't go to that place, it's boring. Or don't go to that place because there's nothing to see. Well, it depends on what I want to do and what I want to see, you know. And I think that that in itself is, is important, not to sort of take on too much what other people think. And I think how I learned more about myself, it gave me a lot of inner strength to, to believe in myself more and to be able to do perhaps things I'd always wanted to do but was too scared to do when I came back from that trip. One more question maybe from the audience anymore. A gentleman over there too. Thank you. We'll make that the last one. Hello, Zoe. Hi. Um, what made you choose the particular route that you took in the end? You, you talked about taking three years to plan it, but why that particular route? Okay, it's, it's like having a wish list. You know, there are certain things, certain things I'd sort of seen on these old maps. For example, there was an incredible place uh, outside of um, Oklahoma City called Okmulgee, and it just happened to be the oldest um, native Indian rodeo place, you know. Um, there, there were certain things, certain places along the way that I wanted to, to go and see, um, things that I had been to either heard about, um, things that I wanted to know if still existed, trying to find the remotest places, and you know, then trying to pull together this route and this, and this journey. So I didn't look at any sort of pre planned routes that other people had done, it was really more to sort of try and tick off that wish list of everything. And you know, sometimes people think, you know, because the book's called Bonneville Goldbust, it was all about getting to Bonneville. It wasn't. It's called Bonneville because of the name of the bike. 
the Bonneville bike? Was I going to go and do this trip, even start the trip, or was I going to go bust? So I think that uh, the route um, was created over a long time because I needed to plan it to make sure I was getting to the right place at the right time, um, and just really tick off everything I don't, you know, wanted to see. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or, yeah. Thank you. Which explains. Sorry. No, you think. Right, I was going to say, which explains why you more or less rejected the idea of Route 66 because it's been done before. Mm. And a lot of what you did hasn't been done before. Well, to a certain extent, but it's done in a different way. Ladies and gentlemen, Zoe Cannon.